You're fed up with the nine to five. You've been working hard for years and you're just not seeing the results you want. You want to break free from the traditional career but don't know how. Business Breaks is here to help. So this is the Business Breaks podcast and today I have a very special guest, Joe Arilla. He is the Senior Vice President of Operations at Cyware, a leading cybersecurity company. He has a background in technology, but he also has a lot of deep technical skills. He describes himself as the Swiss army knife of executive functions, having served at the executive level across diverse departments, including technology, corporate back office, as well as sales and marketing and now most recently, the operations. So today we're going to cover some of Joe's background as well as his most recent experience scaling up a company through the pandemic entirely remotely and also the challenges and lessons learned from all of that experience. So Joe, welcome to Business Breaks. Pleasure to be here, Dante. Thank you very much for, for having me today. Thank you, Joe. And it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being a guest. Uh, so to get us started, Joe, can you discuss your experience working for those various functions? And as you moved up the ranks from uh, a senior, uh, a consultant, analyst, and then to an executive, what was it in that journey um, that helped you get to the top of your profession across a number of different functions? How did how did you manage to climb the ladder? Yeah, I think it's certainly as you were mentioning, it's a it's a little bit of a unique experience, right? No one really comes out of the gate thinking that they want to do more than one thing, looking at it from more of a, a generalist aspect of trying to operationalize all the different things that they get their their hands into. Uh, if you look back at the beginning, you know, began life as a as a computer scientist. So should be sitting here right now, you know, architecting some code and building some enterprise systems, and that would have been the path you know, education I prescribed for you. Uh, but I think combining a, a very strong technology base, you know, understanding how things function at the architectural level, how you build things from scratch, how you grow a product uh, to make a customer happy, right? You know, to make sure that you are delivering something of, of value. Uh, throwing in the middle, you know, heavy consulting, you know, creating businesses from scratch, growing and helping others create businesses and kind of just kind of building them as building blocks over time allows you to add those different functions up. So you start doing one thing, next thing you know, you start a company. Well, you are doing everything at that point, right? You're, you're legal, your insurance, your back office, your customer service, your sales, your marketing, you're trying to, you know, try things out and fail fast. And I think that that is, yeah, that is a key point. You, you're going to try lots of things, you know, when you identify that something doesn't work right, you fail fast, you learn from it, and you, and you try again. And that is sort of how I think those elevations have, have been gained because you kept trying, you kept discussing, you kept working. And each time you do the same thing again, you look at it and you say, hey, what, what happened last time? You know, what was the result? Um, what was the, the benefit of that? And you, you try to make that better. So start one company, you do it one way. Start a second, you do it a little bit different. Start a third and a fourth. You start to look back and you realize, you know, certain mistakes are made. You're not going to make them again. You're kind of building on it. And it helps you to identify those challenges. And that's what's kind of led to those different positions, having taken on heavy roles in you know, revenue operations and technology management and contract and legal operations, combining them over time from all those intimate experiences that allows you to kind of look across the stack. So it's really more of never saying, hey, I'm, I'm just the tech guy or I'm, I'm just the ops guy or I'm just the startup person, is looking at it and saying that you solve problems, that you like to bring value uh, to the equation and like to make things happen. I think when you look at it from that point of view, you're really able to take more onto your plate and then see how you can make magic occur uh, from looking at all those different facets of a business, you know, at the same time. Wow. And uh, that's great insight. Thank you, Joe. So really it's about making those mistakes, getting that exposure and experience that helps you. And I imagine you must have done a lot of reflection throughout your career with the variety of topics that you, you've you encountered. And I imagine each learning experience it presents its own unique set of challenges. But going back to the beginning of your career journey, because this is actually something that has occurred to me 
or, or as uh, I've started coming towards my most recent experience, but you started with your background in software engineering, web development. And can you tell me a bit about how that helped to influence your work uh, throughout your career? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I remember uh, when you're very young, you're deciding, you know, what that major is going to be. Now I'm dating myself quite a while. I looked around and I was like, well, I, I, I love, you know, playing computers. I love, you know, writing code and fixing things and breaking things and rebuilding things. So, you know, I was like computer science, it's, it's a no brainer. And then just, you know, going through that, the, the joy of being able to start with absolutely nothing, right? You open up your terminals, it's a blank, black screen, little blinking dot. You start to fill it with your world, you start to create things, and you realize that this thing you created saves time. And then you build more complicated things, and it saves more and more time. Uh, that was truly exciting. So, you know, beginning life in, in that uh, type of mentality. Uh, worked for a, you know, uh, AT&T back then in the early days, and we were really responsible for building back-end, very heavy, very complicated systems, but then not only building them in singularity, but integrating with decades-old systems that have been around for a very long time. And thinking about the challenges of not living by yourself, just, hey, here's my application in the world, but from a very early point of view, you know, integrating different applications together, understanding how they communicate, understanding how you migrate from entirely different technologies and try to make them work, or how do you make something that is 40 years old operate with something that is brand new uh, and still look the same from the customer point of view? So I think being thrown into that world where you're not just developing a product, but you're developing a product in collaboration with historical you know, technical debt, so to speak, as well as a heavy amount of, of business and, and customer requirements just forces you to more. And when you start to think about it, not just from a technical level of, hey, I'm developing this feature or this functionality, but you start to think about it from how is the customer viewing it? How is the business viewing it? How is the architecture viewing it? You just get a higher level of appreciation, I think, for the for the work effort and then how to, you know, um, corral people around that level of thinking to make what you're doing not just working, but a, a longer term success to accomplish actual business goals. So, you know, when you're younger and you you're given an assignment and you're doing, you know, hey, here's this one little thing to do. A one little thing at the end of the day does have a direct impact amongst you know to a, a very large goal when you can figure out how to draw that line yourself everything becomes a little bit clearer makes complete sense in terms of moving from just being good at one thing to being able to be good at many things but not just that being able to connect the concepts into a holistic view of business and also being able to combine that with technology and understand why the technology is there and how it serves the business. Interesting challenges. It's probably, well, I can see why you are where you are. <laughs> it's, you know, when you, when you start, uh, if you look at things from a technical aspect, I guess in, in my personal opinion, from a technical point of view, it's always coolest to do the, the most fancy design or the most complicated deliverable to, to show the technical work. But at the end of the day, that may not be required. Uh, maybe your application only need to live for six or 12 months. Maybe there's an end goal where your application be consumed by something else. So understanding that that second or third step, not just a step in front of you, uh, really allows the team to focus on what's important as opposed to what each individual may, may think is important. And that, that team level thinking, I think, is really the, or the lesson you learn as you begin to kind of communicate and collaborate uh, more intimately with people. Yeah, yeah. There's there's certainly a temptation, especially when you're new in your career and you feel like you have something to prove, uh, to actually try and show everything you know and all your skills. And there's always that temptation, especially with younger developers, to over-engineer solutions that aren't necessary. <laughs> yeah, I, I could. I, and on the flip side, you mentioned technical debt, and that's something I could talk about for hours because it's been so prevalent throughout my career in terms of how how it's prevented change and transformation and i can imagine on your side i know we've spoken before this show um that we we share experiences you mentioned old technologies and new technologies trying to bring the two together um it's almost like you're bolting on a v va engine to a model t it's it's not it's not easy to make them work together, so but you have to try and find a way to kind of marry the two up, um, maintain the maintain the familiar 
familiarity on me <laughs> with the um, with the customers as well as move the business forward uh, towards some form of necessary modernization. That's brilliant. And uh, thank you. Thank you for all that insight. And coming on to the topic of scaling and recruiting during the pandemic. Now, your current role, when you first joined your your current company, you, you were given a remit to actually build up the cybersecurity team, if that's correct. And um, I, I know you faced some challenges because the team were, by and large, I think it was virtually all remotely recruited uh, because obviously pandemic restrictions and yeah having to respect lockdown regulations etc can you discuss the challenges and opportunities you had to face when recruiting and scaling your cybersecurity team through those times yeah sure absolutely so i actually joined this company uh, at the end of 2019 they were around for a few years before that uh, obviously focusing very heavily on producing a product making it you know the base of what it is today and the, the remit as you proposed there was to essentially help build uh, a u.s team uh, from the beginning so being uh, the first employee here in the states uh, being asked to build up all those teams necessary to support uh, the customer so how do you do that from scratch? You know, no, no one is there. There's nowhere to to build from. You essentially have a blank slate. So, you know, creating an HR system, you know, creating a structure upon which you can hire other folks. Uh, looking at it at that time, not having an exact direction of where the U.S. would fall again, that was pre-COVID, you know, using a PEL uh, seemed like the most logical sense. You know, having had experience of running interstate operations, all the paperwork is, is massive, not knowing how many states we can grow to, that was a logical choice. So onboarding them, getting all the benefits packages and amenities, you know, all set up to entice and attract people. The first part of the of the conversation. Uh, once you have that sort of uh, general foundation set up, is in how do you bring on the talent? So, you know, for my responsibility, you know, hiring across the company, you had very heavy needs for, you know, developers and, you know, IT specialists and product structure support experts and project management. So you're, you're really hiring all across the board including, you know, very technical roles as various security architects and, you know, engineers with, with very specific requirements. And you're also working, you know, with a, with a very skeleton crew, right? You're, you know, there's no one else here in the States to support at that time. So every person you bring on is essentially a recruiter. You know, everyone that you communicate with is helping to, to build that business together. And when you go out to market with these roles and you're working either internally or with, you know, various you know, third-party agencies to help um, find people, you know, you're really asking the question of how well do you fit the requirement or more so, are you going to enjoy working for a startup? Are you going to enjoy the type of atmosphere? Are you going to enjoy the enhanced level of collaboration? Are you going to enjoy working on something that is still being built at the same time as you're bolting on, you know, new features and functionality? So it's kind of like, you know, flying a plane, but at the same time, there's still fixing the engine on the back. You know, your, your plane is going super fast, um, but you're also sort of fixing the insides and can you work in that kind of environment? So we're really looking at questions in an interview process outside of just, hey, here's these requirements, but more of a, are we are we a fit from a, from a mental aspect? Are we a fit from how we'll enjoy the day-to-day -day activities of, of the type of work and how work is performed? Um, that really becomes almost more important than the, the skill set as much as a environmental question of whether an individual, you know, wants to be in that environment, which while different from, let's say, a more mature enterprise, uh, offers a, a vast amount of enhanced uh, touch points where learning can happen. So you're doing a lot more in a, a much more compressed period of time. So you can say the velocity of learning, the velocity of things that you can experience professionally uh, it's just it's just increased exponentially. So you can walk away with a significant learning uh, for a significant effort, but in all, you know, you're getting a lot professionally from such an experience and trying to find those who are, are willing to do that is it, certainly a, a bit of an arduous challenge. Yeah, I can imagine. And um, sounds, sounds like a huge undertaking. And I know from the human side as a job applicant uh, during the pandemic it was certainly challenging and there were various solutions that i saw being rolled out uh delivered to varying degrees of success 
for example, having a pre-screening through a video <laughs> where people would actually send you this link, you click on it, and there would be a person who would, and I even part of me thought this was before generative AI had taken off to the extent it has this, this past year, which has been crazy. But I, I did question whether that was an actual synthetic person who was asking the questions. And then you have to answer to this sort of like one-way interview, which is which can be a challenge because you don't feel like if you're not prepared for it mentally, and I did rehearse, uh, it can be tough to actually feel like you gave the your best your best self, shall we say, to uh, whatever you think the um, hiring manager is looking for. And I guess that's part of the challenge is making sure that you're getting the right people that can actually fit into this um, into your organisation. Also adapt to the challenges and and meet the asks of the business, both the foreseen to come, I presume, and even some unknowns. There, I say, I guess. As you mentioned, you had some challenges that quite a lot of challenges to overcome. Um, were there any stood out for you that you've, you you overcame and you thought oh, that was really interesting? Yeah, I remember when we first began doing the interview process, and we were interviewing for very, very, very roles at a high quantity at a, at a fast clip. It just became hard to really understand the conversation. You know, was were we having a good conversation with the with the potential candidate? We're going through the right details because we were doing it, you know, just with a phone at that point. And this was even before, you know, COVID had come. Um, and I looked at the situation. I was like, you know, we, we have to bring video into the equation, right? We, we can't drive to each of these locations to have conversations. We're interviewing at that point all across the United States. We're interviewing other countries as well. You know, are we allowed to do video? And, and back then, as it was still relatively new, we weren't even sure if you were allowed to do that. So, you know, did the proper checks. Is it is it allowed legally and, you know, to have... Uh, video interviews, how can they, can they not be used, you know, receive that, that green light and then went with it and it instantly saw a change for the better. Uh, you know, granted some people were still not used to the video concept, but you were able to really have a better conversation. So reading the person's facial expressions, understanding where they're nodding, not nodding, you know, also reading those other clues, you know, how was their in, environment uh, for the meeting? Are they, are they business ready? Are they you know, engaged in the conversation? Are they taking notes in the conversation? There was just so much more data available. And also in return, in fairness, it's not one way. They are also reading you, right? So as my team and I are, are interviewing someone, they are absolutely interviewing us and rightfully should be because this needs to be a mutual a desire to move forward with a, you know, professional relationship. So I think the, the video was certainly key. Uh, and I look what was moving away from the typical questions, you know, when you have a, a list of requirements and say you have, you know, 20 things on a job description that you, you'd love to have the person have in their background, you know, it's not going down those 20 things and saying, hey, do you do A, B, C? That doesn't really prove anything. Changing the conversation more from a, you know, tell me your backstory and tell me if you match these specs is trying to understand the, the value they've delivered in previous roles, the, the way they think about problems, the way they think about solutions, the way they collaborate with others, the way they move about solving a problem when there are no directions or practices given. So can they go through the maze themselves and come out the other end? Are they uh, too shy to ask for help or to kind of to reach and understand, you know, how to get assistance? So trying to, you know, tweeze out uh, the methods and mannerisms by which a person, you know, facilitates their skill within a company. And that was really, I think, the, the major differentiator to to understanding how well, you know, two parties will work together, as well as how well that particular candidate uh, would fit within the particular environment of the company. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, you can't, you can't do everything remotely, but there's a lot you can do with technology remotely. As you say, with video, you can at least read a person's reactions to an extent. So to wrap up, Joe, um, what advice would you give, given that all that experience to organizations who are facing similar challenges? Yeah, I think it's very important for organizations to, to understand that any part of the recruiting process still boils down to a human-to-human experience. We can use AI technology to facilitate a faster process, to try to go through more candidates, to try to have a wider, you know, reach of our net. But at the end of the day, regardless of what technology is in the middle, human A will talk to human B. 
uh, and they have to relatively get along and they have to be able to, you know, work in, the, in a good manner. So bringing the humanity aspect back down to the recruiting process is key, ensuring that there's respect in both ways. The job description that is being presented out there in the world, is it a true and accurate representation of what the company needs? You know, perhaps the company is not sure and that JD can be altered over time, but when you're, when you are pushing it out and you're about to close a, a position based on that JD, let's be relatively close to what you want the person to do. So we're not, you know, selling the wrong package of goods, you know, so to speak. Uh, let's ensure that the recruiting process uh, is also dealt with, you know, respectfully. You know, we have to realize that if we do something in the process that is too arcane or too arduous and we do hire that person, that person will still have that negative experience in their head. Just because they were hired doesn't make that negative experience go away. So you are selling the company from the minute you put out that JD and that person responds back with interest. And at that point, you are absolutely in a conversation that's going to memorialize in that person's head. So ensuring that this quality is consistent, that you're putting together a accurate presentation of the culture and company that they will be joining. Um, I think that's really a key aspect. Um, the other part is facilitating that person once they decide to join and you have a, a mutual agreement on cop and other specifics. How is that onboarding process going to be? I, I know for us, when we began, you know, being very early on and not having you know, enough staff here to support things, you know, I went old school on the conversation. I would, I would text the people and say, Hey, fancy, great. Happy you're joining. I think we are, we're seeing you Monday morning. Your first thing will be at nine o'clock. Your laptop's in the mail. It's going to be there by Sunday night. If you have any questions, give me a call. And just ensure that you had those touch points that people you know, felt safe, had the details and prepared. A benefit information was sent out. 401k information was sent out. They knew when their payroll was going to come. There wasn't a question of when the check date was going to be there. Uh, and being overly communicative in that process to, to make it feel comforting uh, in the environment. I think that's certainly a big aspect to uh, increasing the longevity of a person at a company, you know, having a really solid onboarding experience, but also being able to enable them to to get their feet wet faster, to know the players, to know who they have to talk to, to know the the processes and locations in the company upon which they can find data. It, it's really a, a key increment to how they will experience a company in those first few weeks. I think that's so important, making sure that the employee is felt like that they're valued, they're appreciated, and they're taken care of. Because, yeah, that's why we have morale surveys and uh, what do they call them? Uh, well, morale surveys <laughs> and various different uh, names and flavors. But ultimately, it's it's about measuring that uh, intangible, which is how how well does the employee regard the company? And you've laid out a whole raft of good reasons why it's so important to make sure that their experience of working with your organization is the best it can be and there will be challenges but yeah it's it's always important to think about well what do they what do they need how can we get them to be excited about going into work and giving their best work for the business because then it's win-win and yeah thank you for that that's truly really insightful and i guess that actually is a nice lead into my next uh, topic of this so once you've recruited them you've already mentioned about how to make the work as enjoyable as possible um, what else uh, can you do to ensure that your remote employees are productive and engaged and is that um, is that something that you found challenging when you're not all located and you can't exactly see what they're doing. I think that definitely is a, is a challenging aspect of the remote relationship. I think it will continue to be a very challenging aspect. And I think that all the methods used uh, to mitigate that are going to be different for teams, different teams, and also different people in each team. So for example, if you have a person that you're onboarded, that is a, a very high performer, a self-starter, a go-getter, they don't really need to be receiving very you know detailed directions then they will likely survive and thrive and, and grow and you know kind of jump titles you know from there just by their own you know self-desire because they have a goal that they themselves set out for and you're essentially helping to support them with your company on that goal whether it's moving from title to title or experience to experience or gaining you know 
experience, you know, managing, you know, larger numbers of individuals, you're, you're essentially helping them get along a predetermined path uh, that they would like to do in their own professional life. Other individuals uh, may not have the same level of goal setting or the same level of planning, so to speak. So they might require some more conversation regarding expectations. You know, uh, essentially, you know, the proper remote etiquette in terms of communication time. So, you know, the ability to be available on Slack during specific hours, expected times for when information comes back, how information is communicated, who is involved, who is included. You really have to, you know, further educate on the way you want communication to happen within a company. And I almost think that now that you asked this question, you know, Company communication, again, is different per company, but it almost should be like a handbook of how do we communicate? What's our methods? You know, just saying, oh, we're a, a Slack and email company is, is one thing, but what are the expectations? Do we want large format to be in email? Do we want project format to be in Slack? Uh, I think it's very key to inform people what, what that is going to be so they know what's expected in the company. But back to your, to your main question about how to facilitate um, you know, productivity and ensure people are staying on track. I think it's very important to to write things down, even when they may seem simple or germane. So when you have a meeting, and this, you know, I say this as if we practice it all the time, and it's really something that we strive to practice all the time, and it's good to have that in your head. The more you do it, the better. But one of the points of that meeting, why are we talking? Why are we going to spend 15, 30, 45 minutes together? There has to be some point. What do we want to accomplish in that meeting? After the meeting is done, what what did we accomplish? What what decisions were made? What actions were taken? Who owns what? What's the next step? Those even if really you know very simple bullets you know kind of shared either in a respond to to the event through your event system or just to an email with whoever attended the meeting. It's really key to write those down so you can remember why you spoke, what you spoke about, who does what next, and then adding on a project management component on top of that to jot those things down in your PM or your test management system to assign them to owners, to give them due dates, to chain the dependencies between those different actions so you can actually accomplish them. Far too many times you see a vast number of meetings occur, a vast number of individuals partake in those meetings. But you walk away saying, oh, we had a lot of meetings, we discussed stuff, but what what are the true takeaways? What project is more important than the other project? Which one is going to get done first? Which one is a dependency? on other actions in the company that are happening. So I think documentation, task ownership, responsibility, dependency matrix is all, all very key to holding not only just the, the individual employee responsible, but more so the team as a whole, as well as the manager. You know, responsibility has to go throughout that entire conversation. It's not just an employee who could be at fault for not being productive or not completing something. Uh, it's also that manager for keeping track of things and ensuring that there is a, a conversation uh, that allows those things to be attended with the appropriate expectations. And then when those expectations are not met, then you follow up and have a conversation. So if five items are supposed to be done at this particular date and those items are not done, then you go back, hey, you know, these items were committed to, well, they're not done, why are they not done? Was there a problem? Did you not know that we communicate about it, that you can ask questions, that we can discuss it? Using those as lessons learned and building upon that over time. And if an employee is listening and having a mutual back and forth, those issues be remediated, you know, very quickly. That's awesome. And it's right on my street as a project manager. <laughs> you know, taking, uh, taking decisions, uh, noting actions, following up, flagging risks, and setting deadlines and holding people accountable for commitments. It's all, it's all logical stuff, but it's surprising how, how often we can let discipline slide if we're not vigilant about it. And yeah, if you don't, then why do you have a meeting if you've forgotten what you discussed and what was supposed to come out of it? <laughs> I think we kind of bring that back to, to the typical debt topic, you know, from earlier on in our chat, you know, not that it's. It debt in the same debt as, let's say, your actual code base for an application that you're delivering, so to speak. But we live in a world of application mm. upon application upon application. And the average knowledge worker has so many things in front of them that are beeping and bopping and putting, you know, notification badges all over the place that you just have application fatigue and tracking things becomes harder. You know, where does my task list? Is my task list in my PM program? Is it in my task manager program? Maybe I have it in Google Tasks. Maybe I have it in Slack. So, helping streamline 
the places to think for your employees is really key. You know, they may still need those applications to perform different things, but helping guide them to where they should be spending their thought processes so they don't get burned out is sort of the the management and the company's responsibility to to facilitate an easier way to transact communications, you know, within the company. Yeah, that makes sense. And a lot of that intellectual drag and context switching uh, can be mitigated by just having some standardized processes. And I know in most companies you have at least, uh, even in project management, you have four or five project management systems. And heaven forbid, there are some SMEs who are just spread thinly across multiple projects because they're the ones who have a specific knowledge. They're technical experts uh, for a specific aspect of your business. Unfortunately, it impacts multiple projects. So they're probably running from Jira to as you say, Slack to Trello to Asana and then Microsoft Project or even Smartsheets and, and various cloud-based tools. And then you're getting pinged on emails for tasks that are due like two days, two days before the next meeting. And you're in meetings on top of that. And it can get a bit overwhelming, I can imagine, if it's not well managed. Because you also, if if your top people are suddenly missing deadlines, you've got to think, well, is this a resourcing issue rather than a person issue? Just absolutely. You know, what are those key goals that you really want to be accomplishing right now? You know, you may have 200 things on the table. What are the five that if you don't do them, you are not going to be here next quarter? I'm starting to really streamline that conversation for the sake of the organization when you may have a temporary resource issue. Yeah, totally. And that's a, that's a key for uh, someone as a vice president, yeah, part of that remit in terms of decision-making is also deciding on priorities. What are the really important things that are non-negotiable? <laughs> uh, thank you for that. And just uh, one add-on to that is when you're measuring, so that's a great way in terms of ensuring that the employees are able to give their best work and have the right environment. Um, how do you measure success and what metrics do you have to ensure that your team are aware, as well as yourself probably, that you know that you're on the right track and that performance is good and that there's less risk of things going wrong further down the line, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the answer I give, I want to be cognizant that it, it's relevant for how I'm looking at things at this particular time with this particular size base of employees. I, I think that at a, at a lower size and at a higher size, my answer would change to accommodate the individuality of, of that particular situation. So at the, at the current time, based on the size we're at, which are the teams that I manage, I, I think the conversation kind of has to be very open uh, in terms of how thoughts are exchanged or how challenges and low bumps are, are kind of mitigated and kind of discussed with a priority. Um, but more so when it comes down to, you know, looking at if people are on track, if the team is on track, you know, one way I like to, to judge that is how often uh, do I need to pull uh, for information uh, versus the information being there? Uh, so for example, let's say in my head, there's 20 things that are really important for this particular team. And I, and I discussed it. We know they're there. We know there's dates. We know that they have to get done. Um, there's four weeks pass by and I never hear an update on those items or are they never discussed or do I never see them being closed in the, in the, you know, in the task management tool? That would be a sign that something is not right. Uh, if everyone stacked hands on a meeting and said, these are 20 important things, we all commit to doing them, but weeks pass and there's no conversation, that's a challenge. Whereas if you have a team in the same situation, but they're sending you a few a week that are getting done, or they're asking questions, or they're saying they need to help update, so there's all the dependencies, and you're seeing action being moved, and your task management application is being updated, and you can see kind of activity, I think that's a much more higher performing team because they're taking ownership over those items. Now, this is also both assuming a, a non-micromanaged environment, right? We're all professionals. We've been doing this for a while. There's no need to, to net nanny people, so to speak. So if you can look at the the workload that you have and you can look at the items that have a higher priority and you could help to move those forward, uh, that by itself, those actions that your team is taking, I think is a very good metric towards you know, the team operating well assuming you're guided by a discrete set of goals and items that you need to have done by a certain time. 
Uh, whereas a team that lets those pass and kind of has other, let's say, conditional answers for, for where things are that deviate from the expectations without any particular warning or conversation or red flags in the middle, uh, that is a sign that perhaps that productivity and team may need some, some altering uh, in order to be successful. So, you know, other answers might be, oh, well, there has to be specific, you know, OKRs and specific KPIs and you're looking at metrics and time to close of a task and you know, the number of comments back and forth, all, all those things could potentially be useful in other environments. I think at the current time, though, it's really more of a identifying what this team needs to do by a certain date. What are those discrete steps of items? Not, you know, down to the more granular detail, but these, these are the things that need to happen. And watching progress towards those things happen within that time frame in some relatively organized manner is sort of the current judgment stick. That's brilliant. And perfect point there's no one size fits all it just depends on the composition of the team complexity of the challenges and yeah uh to an extent the actual individuals themselves how self-motivated they are to drive results forward versus maybe others who might need more hand-holding uh support in terms of moving things forward that's great and in terms of moving on to your experience and career advice as a senior vice president who's responsible for all operations of an organization and you've served to to be able to do that you've had to serve across a number of different functions in your career what were those challenges navigating a career with all those varied experiences and requirements being having to be able to pick up something you're not necessarily the expert on at least at the start before and, and trying to make an impact in that role? I think that we all live in a essentially a knowledge society at the moment, right? Where most of us are, are knowledge workers if we're not working, you know, physically with our hands and learning how to learn and learning how to find accurate knowledge is sort of the predecessor to any single ask. So let's say if you go back in time, you know, when I was asked or when I knew for myself I had to do particular, let's say, sales activities or revenue activities or marketing or finance activities uh, that I did not have that experience in beforehand. Of course, we, you know, we had Google, we had the internet, we had, you know, resources. Um, how do you determine the shortest path to a somewhat cohesive answer? So let's take marketing, for example, and let's say you were trying to create a new marketing strategy from scratch and it's your first time doing marketing work. Well, that's a, you know, a vast ocean of, of resources that you can look at and opinions of what you can do. I think over time, after learning how to learn, you know, over and over and over again, you can more quickly go through the data in front of you to identify what in that moment uh, seems to be the most important aspects to look at. And then focusing on that much smaller set, that more granular set of research, as opposed to that wider ocean of research. So in my opinion, over time, the, the more you learn things that you didn't know beforehand, and the better you get at a quick yes, no for whether something is important. So where in the early times, maybe you needed to spend, you know, a few weeks to understand the scope around a particular new thing that you had to do, you know, maybe those few weeks then went from, let's say, just throw it out there, let's say four weeks, the next time it went to three weeks, two weeks, one week, and then you're down to a day because you're able to look at the information out there, keep slicing and dicing and carving away the parts that just don't smell right and don't look right and don't make sense. Till you get to the part that you actually need to focus on, then you can dive down deep into that particular segment and really understand that to its fullest to, to do the task at hand. So I think the the experience comes in just knowing what data to pay attention to, and and how to facilitate your you know ability to consume that data and connect it with the you know previous resources that are still kind of you know mentally stuck in your head. Brilliant, and yeah, it's it's all about understanding what really is important again coming back to priorities probably dare i say and correct me if i'm wrong here a bit of pareto what is the 20 percent that gets to the 80 percent of the value in a topic uh, the 20 percent of the subjects and it might not be 20 percent because you know in all all areas there's understanding a certain degree of expertise that you need to have in order to lead a function or a role, or, or even guide a decision around a certain topic. Uh, but yeah, I, I think, as you say, it's under, 
over time, it's understanding what's really important in an area and being able to sniff it out. Is that instinctive then? Would you say, or just has that become instinctive or is there a, um, a definite technique that you've come, uh, you've, you've managed to discover, shall we say? <laughs> you, you had me thinking if I had a definite technique, sounds like a, a book you should sell. So I don't, I don't have that at the moment. And now you have me wish I did. Um, um I, I think somewhat instinctive, somewhat collaborative, you know, I think somewhat just as, as you do things more and more, you get faster at it. So even, you know, let's go back to cooking, right? You know, you start cutting celery for the first time, you're cutting very slowly not to cut your fingers off. You do that enough times, it's bam, 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 chop, 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 you're done. Uh, and you learn how to do that skill faster and faster. So as, as humans, I think we just get better the more we do something. And this is just a, a knowledge aspect of how you do something as opposed to a physical aspect. So this isn't like painting a wall or laying down tile or counting items on the shelf. You're just using your, your brain essentially to manipulate information faster in your head. And I think the 80-20 rule is, is, is point on. You know, we use that in development you know, all the time. And over time, you realize that letting go of not having that final, final, final answer is okay in, in many instances that, you know, if the product doesn't require that level of, you know, uh, specific, you know, correctness. Um, it's okay to be 80% correct and move forward today, uh, as opposed to being, you know, 95% correct and moving forward in a month. You know, what is that month worth of lost revenue? It becomes a money equation. You know, you have to understand which is more important, the time or the money. There's some situations when you can't make mistakes. You know, let's say you're working on a contractual or legal issue or insurance and those kind of things. Well, you know, you want to get closer to that other number uh, because you need to mitigate against a much larger potential failure. Um, but barring that, you know, it really comes down to where do you need to move in life as a company and how much time do you have till that next you know decision needs to be reached. Absolutely. That makes so much sense. Thank you, Joe. And that's great. Uh, we've covered the execution piece. And then in terms of your career, being able to uh, get so many experiences that have gotten you to where you are today. How do you, do you, is there an element of planning and, and strategizing in terms of your career moves? How do you, what makes you think, oh, I, I've got to go here? Or have you been guided, mentored, or is it a bit of your own intentional thoughts and decisions? Um, you know, I, I can't at the moment thank a particular guidance or, or mentoring. I wish I wish I could. And if I look back, I would have partaked in that if I knew of that stuff early on in, in life. Um, you know, I think certain changes that have occurred over time was really more of an, a, an awareness that you were not growing professionally. Or that there was other things that could help you to to do more in the world or to experience more from a knowledge point of view or to have a, a bigger difference. I think when you reach those pivotal points mentally in your career path, um, you, you might begin to evaluate where that should be and, and what type of things will help to satisfy uh, that desire. I think over time, as you accumulate the roles and the, the conversations that are had, you could eventually move into more of a, a thoughtful strategic mission of how some of the things are done. And, you know, to be honest, a lot of that probably occurs as there's just a vast, larger quantity of information these days available uh, to, to job seekers and, and career transitions than existed even 10 or 20 years ago. So the, the world has matured to a point where a lot of those secret sources have been bubbled up through podcasts like this, webinars, events, white papers, communities. Uh, there's just so much more knowledge out there. I think if we ask this question to someone coming out of college today, uh, someone you know of the younger generation, they might know these things out of the gate because they saw it online and researched it. Whereas, let's say you and I had to learn it through experience. So both valuable that we both have this information, um, but I think others may be able to pick this up even faster going forward and plan their own futures in a particular more methodical manner, perhaps. Yeah, I think definitely a good time to be young right now in that in that regard, in the sense that all that knowledge, all that insight is freely available and very accessible at a low cost. I remember uh, when I was at that age trying to get insights, I would have to go to a bookstore because the libraries were quite old. You know, the books were out of date and you had to pay a fortune for a good manual, technical manual. Sorry. No, no, please. I was just going to say, and uh, eventually 
give it a couple of years, that would be out of date. <laughs> oh yes, I, I remember you know earlier on while I was learning you know how to how to design and to code. Even back then, compilers weren't available. So if you didn't work for a company and you want to you know go write some C plus plus, there wasn't really anything freely available for you to use of a high quality to really get your your feet wet to have that education prior to having that position. Whereas you look today. You know, a, a new developer can get their hands wet on practically everything they need before ever stepping foot in that interview chair. You know, just through the world of resources and the amount of times they can make mistakes without being judged or watched is infinitesimally more uh, than previous generations had. Yeah. And that's a mindset you have to get over if you've come from a position where you couldn't afford or you couldn't be perceived to be making mistakes. Now you can. It's free. There's test environments, there's sandboxes where you can just go wild, go nuts and do whatever you want and try and break the thing. In fact, there are even jobs where your job is to break, try and break a piece of software, which is great. <laughs> so there's roles for every every sort of personality type. <laughs> yes, for sure. And I think, I think marrying those two types together as well, right? You have the, the generation with, with all these new benefits at their fingertips and you have those who have come up from different educational systems or learning experiences, you know, not separating uh, these two schools of education, but combining them allows you to bring forward both the understanding of how to learn through, you know, trial and error and, and more, you know, making mistakes, as well as the more modern approach of having everything, you know, at your fingertips. You, you get additional synergies by being able to unify those different levels of thought and looking at things from two different sides of the coin. So you're essentially taking in more data points just by having, you know, different backgrounds and experiences, you know, in a particular conversation. That makes complete thanks sense. Thank you, Joe. And um, just finally on this career advice, what's the best piece of career advice you've ever received from a career coach or mentor? I know you mentioned you wish you had more mentoring in your career, but... <laughs> Have you had anyone who's inspired you and whose opinions have stuck with you in terms of giving you that bit of coaching or guidance? Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, in, in conversations, you know, over the years with, with various, you know, people responsible for recruiting on both sides of the fence and, and for career growth and, you know, conversations, um, I remember someone pointing out that it didn't really matter as much as what you actually did, you know, looking at or numbers, you know, on your resume, your profile, or, or raw experiences, or title, or applications. That's everyone can have that. You know, you really need to translate that to the value that you're able to give. What What is the reason that this conversation should take place? What is the reason that we should work together? What is the reason that I want to know who you are? So, moving from a conversation around you know bullets related to things that are accomplished, you know, a list of you know, things you can check off the list and moving to reusable value statements about what you bring to a conversation, why you should be in that room. I think that is a, a biggest uh, mental shift from how you view um, the conversation around, let's say, your, your professional background and, you know, what you've done or what you want to do. Totally agree. And it's about that narrative. Professionalism doesn't mean stale. Uh, formal it means actually having a story that's compelling being able to craft a narrative uh, and and be able to be relatable i guess is the correct interpretation i i think the relatable part is is absolutely correct and that you know kind of harkens back to the whole interview conversation you're interviewing in both directions you're interviewing a candidate the candidate's interviewing you you're not going to come from the same as that background. You're not going to, you know, speak the same as that way. Um, but you have to be able to understand each other, to be relatable, to be compassionate, to be respectful, uh, to move towards mutual ideas, you know, with your various viewpoints. If you can't have that level of, let's say, ease and simplicity in conversation, and that flow is very awkward and has lots of rigid edges and kind of stages and transitions, that's not really going to work out well, right? Not not every person is made to work with every other person. That's just not how we were designed. But if you can present yourself in a manner and you you can honestly have that conversation uh, where it is very fluent and back and forth, and you're you know really kind of 
pitching things together and you're kind of almost writing a sheet of music while you're having a conversation. I think that's where you really see, you know, good synergies occur. Totally. I think especially with all of the um the the sort of like the routine tasks being automated, it is it is coming to relationships, those soft skills, being able to communicate, relate, yeah, interact with people and as you say, even something like having a conversation, there has to be a nice flow. If you find you're struggling to relate to your employees or it feels edgy and tense, then you really need to sort that out. <laughs> Absolutely. And especially in a, I think in a remote fashion, perhaps it happens even faster because when you're in person with someone, I think there's things that you can do to mitigate that quicker, right? There's, there's ways that you can use body language or you can just be in a room and some of that goes away when you are forced to work remotely and let's say you're off video and you're only focusing on someone's voice so essentially every conversation is a, a mental map to the previous or repetitive let's say voice uh fingerprint or footprint of their earlier conversations you can more easily tell when that when that tone changes when the type of questions change when the level of excitement changes and at least in my experience when that occurs that typically signals a a break uh, in the relationship you know maybe that individual is not happy with their position or their compensation or the type of work they're doing or their environment or they're itching for a change um, as humans it's very hard for us to mask those emotional cues so to speak uh, so i think that you know the the fingerprint of our conversations our mannerisms the way we kind of tell our stories as as those alter those are kind of signs that perhaps there should be a deeper dive into how that relationship is going definitely and you have to be vigilant because things don't remain static and uh priorities change not just in organizations but in individuals as well depending on their life circumstances absolutely i mean for us as an organization you know obviously compliance is is very key uh, as is for for many organizations um, one thing i think in particular that's important for a company that's not often really considered is building resiliency into your teams. So, you know, think about compliance, but more so from a just a, a business aspect. So when you have a team, especially a small team, how do you prevent failure or catastrophic disruption in a company if one person decides to exit or to leave or to pause or to go on a long break? You know, can we ensure that all of our functions, all of our processes are, are resilient in a manner where the business can recover uh, from any kind of hiccup that wasn't really expected or a change it wasn't really prepared for. And while that can be viewed as, well, you're, you're just trying to make people replaceable. You're trying to make people, you know, not have to, you know, have that tribal knowledge and not have to be in that position because, you know, basically all the steps are being documented. It's really more so allowing people to grow. You know, once an individual essentially has codified or formalized some of their repetitive processes, that frees up the mental bandwidth and just the weekly bandwidth to go do that larger project on the shelf, to go learn that new technology, to go learn that new thing, to go enhance this more complicated activity. So the more we can formalize and document our processes and become resilient as a company, as an entity, uh, we actually enable our team to go do new things, which for most humans makes them happier because they get to learn something new. So it, it kind of benefits, you know, both sides uh, of the relationship, in my opinion. Absolutely. Uh, coming back to that win-win scenario where it's a virtuous cycle. The employee becomes more and they can give more to their job. And, and with a better, uh, shall we say, more vigor, more uh, spirit, more motivation to actually show what they've what they've learned and how they've grown and express themselves uh, probably getting a bit uh shall we say uh, emotional there but yeah it's, it's such an important topic and motivation isn't it's it, it can be tricky but it's almost like the way you've outlined it it seems almost simple and i know it isn't that easy at times there's also competing priorities the immediate needs versus future requirements and trying to find that happy balance between the two. But if you can get the balance right, then it's really great for the organization. Thank you. I fully, I fully agree. I also think that uh, while some may not like individuals to repeat themselves, right, or be repetitive, I think with the quantity of information we have these days, there's just so much noise 
if you truly feel that your employee or your team did something phenomenal, you can repeat that for a few weeks. You can keep going over about how that's beneficial to the organization, about how that has enabled other things to happen. Um, because it, it is important, right? It is important people make positive change when they when they move the business forward through their efforts and their dedication. And, and recognizing that, even if it's small, I think leads to bigger and better things for, for all the parties. Totally, totally. Thanks, Joe. And I mean, that wraps up the local interviews and it's been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much. I have a few final questions uh, before you go. <laughs> um, Great. Sure. Brilliant. So you've, you obviously have a busy career, but what do you like to do in your spare time? You know, I, I like I like the outdoor stuff. You know, I think um, the United States has just a, a vast amount of underrepresented hikes and trails and parks that are just freely available. And just going out to explore, you know, looking at vistas, trying to see if you can, you know, hike, uh, you know, another mile more than your last trip. Um, I think that's a lot of fun. You know, it's outdoors, healthy, some fresh air, and it's just, you know, constantly something new to experience. Brilliant. And it's good for, great for mental health as well to be close to nature. It is. Also, you take some great pictures too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Always good. Always good. Yeah. And and pictures are great for memory. And it's so easy now with the smartphones being as good as they are with the cameras. Oh yes, it, it, it's almost an excuse. You know, if you if you buy a new phone, uh, you have to go to all the same places again so you can get that even sharper, crisper image. But no, it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I can I can imagine. And yeah, I like to do it. But my photos aren't that great, admittedly. I, I think that's something that I have to get on my learning list, how to take great photos. You see them on social media. There's multiple courses. I just need to think about, well, what do I really need to learn? <laughs> and go for it. I think as long as they make you happy, they're great photos, right? As long as you took it and you're happy with where you, where you were and, and what you remember, that's good enough. Absolutely. It's all about memories at the end of the day. Uh, and then... What are three books you'd recommend to your listeners, to the listeners, and why? Yeah, you know, I'll be honest. I haven't had the ability to read as many books, you know, as of late, based on you know other content that's read. Uh, you know what? What I can say, um, if you are on the operations side of the house, um, there's a community called Operations Nation that's producing a, a wonderful book for COOs, especially those starting out in the industry for the first time. I think they're in there at this, as of this time, they're in that third or fourth chapter. Um, it's phenomenal, uh, made up of experience from a lot of great people. I think that's a great book if you are on the operation side of the house. I think in, in general for others, I know not books, but there's just a unfathomably of, of podcasts that are available these days. Just find something that you want to learn that you're not sure about spend 20 minutes looking at it and see if that pushes your life in a different direction. See if that allows you to experience something that you're hoping to experience. You know, you're going to spend those 20 minutes doing something else, whether it's regular YouTube emails or social media or something else, you know, see if that pushes your education or your knowledge in, the, in a way that enlightens and inspires you would be my recommendation. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm guilty of that getting easily distracted on social media. My guilty pleasure is listening to YouTubers talk about my favorite sports team. <laughs> so it's nuts. It's it, it's something I enjoy when I want to sort of like get away from thinking. I hear the, the YouTube algorithm brings you to interesting places. <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, and you know, some of it is relevant. Some of it, you just think, how did that get there? <laughs> but thankfully, I can also put my opinion on most of it and say, hide. <laughs> <laughs> keep everything relevant and brilliant and do you have any exciting projects you're working on right now that you'd like to share with the listeners you know it kind of goes back to some of what i was sharing before and i think at our, our particular stage of growth and our, our scaling it is time to to look at everything with a finer tooth comb and understand uh, if the processes will continue to scale appropriately uh, is a time to further document, you know, your methods and procedures to look at them from a, a mitigation aspect of do they work? If something goes wrong, can you, uh, can you put more burden on them? And will they be strong? Um, specifically, I also own a, a revenue operations team. You know, looking at that from a conversation of all the stakeholders in the company around the revenue conversation, are we enabling them? Uh, are we moving past just having tools and do things? 
to are we having tools with data that produce intelligence? Like, can we use that intelligence to create action and decision making? So trying to sort of elevate the ability for the company and the leadership uh, to use our outputs in a manner that kind of forces change to happen uh, based on now having historical data or now having the ability to be resilient. That's sort of part of the world of activities that you know we're currently trying to undertake. Brilliant. And, and that sounds so... I, I've been there in terms of you go through that mad rush of uh, getting everything established, but then you need to take a pause at some point in time just to let things stabilize and, and then get ready for that next push towards growth. So it's very, very exciting. Yeah, and it can be, it, it gives you that satisfaction as well because you do take quick decisions and, and now you can reflect, were they the right decisions? Can we make them better before we go on to the next phase of growth? So thank you, very interesting. And then finally, where can our listeners find and connect with you online? Absolutely. I mean, at the moment, I'm going to have to say LinkedIn would, would be the best choice. Um, so if you just look me up underneath my name, I, I believe there's only uh, one of our show that shows up at the moment. And I'll be happy to connect and you know network the conversation from there. Brilliant. And I'll make sure that the, uh, the link is in the show notes, Joe. Uh, Joe, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you for being on the show. Oh, thank you very much, Dante. I, I thoroughly appreciated it. And I hope uh, some of this information could be useful to others. I'm sure it will be. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. You too. This podcast shares experiences and insights gained from business, IT, and digital finance. Hosted by two leaders who have made the leap themselves, this show is dedicated to helping listeners think differently about their career aspirations.